This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Carbon credits have been in the news, and not always for the right reasons, with concerns about whether they really do help reduce emissions. Yet, carbon credits can be a useful tool in tackling climate change. What is needed is tougher standards and more careful vetting of carbon offset projects. Singapore is positioning itself as a global hub for carbon offset trading and project financing. And this is helping drive efforts to boost the quality and integrity of carbon offsets. The government recently announced the eligibility criteria for carbon offsets that can be used by big polluters here under the nation's carbon tax regime. With us today to tell us more about this is our very special guest, Singapore's Minister for Sustainability and the Environment, Miss Grace Fu. Welcome to the show, Minister. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for having me. Now, tell us why carbon credits are a useful tool and how can they help Singapore meet its climate targets? If you will allow me, I'll use a illustration. I've visited Chennai recently for G20 and a Singapore company that has a real estate development there. Let's call it Company Indy because I don't have the permission from them to talk about it. They develop several office buildings in the heart of Chennai, and they want them to be green buildings. They want it to be net zero, and they want it to be, you know, really highest standard of green marks. So what do they do? Because in the heart of Chennai, busy city, where do you find renewable energy? So they've decided to buy and invest in a renewable energy solar farm several tens of kilometres away from the city. And although they are not directly connected to the solar farms, they were able to buy the electrons. So they take a certain amount of utility off that grid, that solar grid. At the same time, they offset it against the normal electricity they get from the normal grid in Chennai. So in that way, because they have bought renewable, they were able to offset it they are able to claim that this building is a green building because they are not just buying off the normal grid, they are actually buying solar. So it was a very neat solution, I thought, right? And it allows Chennai, for example, to really build up the renewable energy industry at the same time for companies like this one to really go green, prepare to buy or pay a bit more for renewable and go green. So... I was thinking, what do we do for this same company who has property development in Singapore as well? We don't have that solar farm tens of kilometres away. So what do we do? So if you imagine this situation in Chennai, 30 kilometres, let's say, away, and then there's just a sovereign boundary between this company in Chennai and that solar farm, you would have what we call an international collaboration on renewable energy. Investing across the border, if there is a border, national border, and then buying it to offset. So that's a very basic concept of international carbon cooperation or credits. Because you can actually use the electricity, but if you are buying renewable, you're using it to offset against your carbon emission when where you are. So carbon credit is important for us for this very basic reason. Many companies in Singapore want to go green, want to do the right thing, 
want to use renewable energy, but we just don't have enough. We have some, but it's not enough for everyone. So companies are looking outside the boundary of the Singapore border and look for alternative renewable energy that they can use it to offset. So at the company level, they do that and they're able to offset and they're able to claim that you know the building is running on green energy. But what does the country do? As a country, we have you know committed to net zero. Somewhere in the next two, three decades, we're going to find alternative energy sources. It can be importation, really importation through cables. It can be solar. It can be other forms of renewable energy. But we will not have enough to totally go green. So we need to find some way, just like this company has, several tens of kilometers away or even further away to find ways to offset their emission. And that's the international G2G collaboration on carbon. That's where they come in. Our companies collectively, plus ourselves as government, can buy some carbon credits belonging to companies, projects that's across, outside our boundary, and then to use that to offset. That's the only way for us to reach net zero in the near term because we are limited by the options of renewable energy that we have in Singapore. But there remains concerns about the quality and integrity of some carbon offsets. So why is that? Because carbon credit as a concept actually has existed for several decades. And when it first started, we didn't have the clear rules to govern this type of instrument. And of course, we have not negotiated all the international rules that are you know, governing this. When carbon credit evolved without clear rules, and then people start to think about what would be the right governance structure, you will find that existing carbon credits did not quite meet the rules. Uh, for example, you know, how do you count this credit that has been sold? Is it still counted in the country's renewable energy or you have to reduce the amount that has been sold? So these rules did not come about actually until maybe last two years when we have negotiated Article 6 in Paris Agreement. And also in some cases, project owners did not have the right regulatory framework. You know, for example, in forestation or reforestation projects, they didn't have the protection to ensure that there's no leakage. So you have some find some way where some project owners are able to claim that they've reforested the area, but in another area they were deforesting. And that's really not how carbon credit should work. We really want to achieve sort of net carbon sink. And that's why I think we're evolving the standards and we are improving the regulatory framework in the respective countries as well. Now, Singapore has a carbon tax and this is rising to $25 a tonne from 2024 for all facilities that emit 25,000 tonnes or more of greenhouse gas emissions a year. So what's the benefit of allowing companies to use offsets to meet a small portion of their carbon tax liabilities? And currently that portion is a maximum of 5%. The carbon tax really is um, is a way to make carbon emission, the CO2 emitted in the air, an explicit cost. So when it's not costed, companies will not see on their balance sheet or profit and loss statement. There's no financial implication. And so while you are creating externalities on the environment, there's no real cost to you in a measurable way. So carbon tax achieve the objective of putting that cost very explicitly on the companies that are 
producing the externalities, producing the CO2. You have an explicit and clear carbon tax amount. It starts to get companies focused on this. You, you start to have a cost on your profit and loss. So companies will say, okay, if it's $25, if it's $45, or if it's a higher amount, what can I do to reduce that? I can reduce emission. I can put in some instrumentation or equipment or change my processes to reduce the emission. And I will have to use, you know, measure what's the benefit versus the cost of putting these changes. And the idea really is to make it worthwhile for companies to say, okay, I'm going to really put in my effort, put in my investments to reduce the carbon emission. That will achieve the purpose of carbon tax. For Singapore, we are also looking at two or three decades down the road where we really need net zero position by 2050. And as I mentioned earlier, we will need carbon credits to be part of the equation. So we need a well-functioning, healthy, robust, high-quality carbon credit market in order for us to, to buy as a consumer and then to you know, use it to offset. So we see that it is important for us, government, as well as for companies to have a good carbon credit market because there will be companies like this company indeed I talked about. They want to build a building, they want to put a data centre in Singapore, but they also want to do good. So they also need to have a way to have a carbon credit avenue to use it for offset. So a well-functioning carbon credit market will be good for the climate. And so we decided to put 5% really as a way to get the market going. Why at 5%, there's really no right number. It could have been 3, it could have been 8 or 10, but we decided on a number of 5 just to get it started, and we will review this as we go along. Singapore is trying to address the issues of quality and integrity for offsets. And on October the 4th this year, for instance, your ministry, the Ministry of Sustainability and the Environment, released eligibility criteria for carbon offsets to be used to meet carbon tax obligations. So tell us about the new criteria. So this offset is going to be reducing the tax collection, the carbon tax collection that the government will be getting. Because when we allow offset, that amount is going out of the government system. So we must make sure that whatever revenue that we're foregoing is foregone for good reason and for good basis. So we must make sure that the carbon credit projects are of high quality. Otherwise, it will be just good money gone wasted. So we set up, we consulted quite widely. We looked at some list of criteria and we used that to, you know, iterate with consultants, iterate with specialists, iterate with other bodies that are looking at carbon credit standards, such as COSIA, such as ICVCM. Uh, and that helped us to come up with some set of standards we think that will be generally accepted by the industry, at the same time endorsed by environmentalists. So that's where I think the sweet spot that we're trying to get. To get it too high quality, high standard, it will be too narrow a market. Companies will find it very hard to do a, a projects like that. It's very hard to comply or meet the standards. Then it will be a na very narrow carbon credits that's not good for anybody. Setting it too low will be too easy and then you're not doing it for 
environment sometimes. They do it for the wrong reason. So we need to find, again, that sweet spot. So we follow COSIA quite a bit because COSIA has gone through that negotiation process with the environmental groups and so on. So we decided to benchmark ourselves closely with COSIA. COSIA is, yes, is a standard for the aviation industry supported by the UN aviation body, ICAO, for example. So Now, where do these eligible offsets come from? I believe it's really just from government-to-government agreements between you know, nations that uh, Singapore has signed agreements with, if that's correct. So carbon credits can happen anywhere in, in many parts of the world. Already it's happening. It's, it's already been transacted. But for carbon credits to be recognised for carbon tax offset, as I mentioned, we need to ensure that it is of sufficient quality for us to agree to forego our tax collection. So one of the key considerations is whether they comply with Article 6 because we want to develop this for us to reach net zero, the government, the country to reach net zero. So it must have an offset at the country-to-country level. So we need to first have implementation agreement with corresponding countries that are both prepared to observe Article 6 rules. Because if they are not prepared to observe Article 6, we can't offset it. UNFCCC will not allow us to offset, then you know it doesn't achieve our purpose. So countries that are prepared to observe and also to abide by you know expectations on regulations, on supervision, on inspection, for example. The type of projects can be nature-based, or technology-based. So nature-based, we're talking about carbon sink, for example, replanting of deforested area, or planting of mangroves, for example, or seagrass. There has actually been quite good effect. Basically, communities along the coastlines may plant mangrove or seagrass. And how do they get that funding? They get it through the carbon credit project. Otherwise, communities may not have the resources to do so, or nor the motivation But when they do that, when they plant the mangrove or the seagrass, they find that they're actually restoring the ecosystem, ecological system of that area. And you find that that's helpful to the rehabilitation of wildlife or even fishery. So again, you find overfished area able to regain part of their population of fish and communities along the coast can rely on fishing, fishery as their livelihood again. So these are good areas where we think that countries that are prepared to abide by the rules, countries that are prepared to abide by project guidelines as well, to make sure that they have the regulatory framework to govern this. You know, you don't have planting of mangrove only to be destroyed a year later and, you know, not survive very long. So you need a full framework to ensure that the project survives for the long term. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now, regarding the offsets eligible for use in Singapore, how will we know that they are of high quality? In other words, what's the process of vetting them? So we work with project programs, that are set up by Gold Standard or Vera. These are organisations, some of them NGOs, some of them for profit, but they have a framework of accreditation and monitoring and reporting and verification. You know, the analogy is like the credit rating agencies that will rate companies' bonds or instruments. So these programme owners 
will then go and look at the project itself. They will do the scoring. There's a checklist to go through and they will continue to monitor the projects. So when they are reputable and therefore, you know, we trust that they will have the standards to, to ensure that it's complied with going forward. So that's the basic first step to take. Really, they have project that is accredited by reputable programs. And then it has to fall within the framework that I mentioned about the country themselves, whether it's at provincial level, local level, or at the federal capital level, they need to have that framework to protect this. We do not want, it's, you know, what we call leakage, for example. While you are replanting in one area and then you're deforesting in another area, and that's not getting us net carbon sink. So we need to have a good framework to ensure that, you know, there's no leakage and there's additionality to the program. So there are a few criteria such as that, seven of them that we will use, and that will ensure that you know, the projects that we take will have both project-level endorsement, country-level endorsement, and also country-to-country registration. We're going to register these projects at the central registry so that you know, we understand that this has been taken by Singapore, the credits, and then the host country will then have to reduce it from their carbon emission so that we do not double count. So just tell us a little bit more about the seven eligibility criteria. I mean, you've mentioned leakage, which is obviously very important. Additionality, which of course means that the investment would probably not have happened otherwise without that investment. And and there are others uh, around permanence, that the reductions must be real. And there are a few others. Maybe just very briefly touch on some of those. Um, So you talked about, say, real means that, you know, if you are doing planting of seagrass, for example, there must be a methodology that we subscribe to. And there must be some good basic research statistics that show that they are effective carbon sink. They are achieving the objective they set out to do. Permanence means that, you know, it's going to be there for as long as the carbon credit survives. Whatever project that you're doing must be there for that duration. And that requires monitoring and reporting as well. That's another criteria where we need to, you know, have regular reporting and verification to check that, you know, the project is going as it's intended. Of course, you know, if you're talking about some reforestation projects, some from time to time, you may have problems such as forest fires. You may have some problem with the saplings that you have planted. In order to address those conditions, we will sometimes take a smaller proportion of the project than the entire. So if you are planting 100 hectares, we may buy a credit that is maybe 60 or 70, just for the sake of argument, and it allows substitution if we have problem with some areas. So that's some way to address issues such as permanence when it comes to nature. And of course, there's also the social benefits around some of these projects too. It's, it's, it's great that it's benefiting nature, but of course, there's the people that live around these projects. There's yes, also one the of the seven is actually no net harm. Yeah. So in implementing this project, there are other criteria, such as are we including the indigenous community, for example? Are we getting people retrained in you know, the transition? So for example, in the area of renewable energy, technology-based carbon credit. You do want to have a transition plan for the local community to be retrained, up-trained, upskilled so that they can undertake new jobs that has been displaced with this new technology. So these are all consideration in the no net harm criterion. 
Now, it's time to get a little nerdy, and this is the concept of corresponding adjustments, mm. which I think most people wouldn't have heard of. And uh, But essentially, it's avoiding double counting, meaning that uh, the emissions removed or avoided from approved projects uh, is counted only towards one nation's carbon account. So it's pretty complex where you get down into the nitty-gritty of it. So perhaps can you try to have a crack at explaining it in, in a simple way? <laughs> I am not an expert in this, but I'll try my very best to make it understandable, at, at least for me. <laughs> Use the company again, the, the example of company Indy, who has this building in Chennai. It has bought uh, renewable energy and then use it to offset. So it's still the same electron. It doesn't change. They switch on the aircon, they switch on the lights, the you know all the elevators, and they use energy. Except that there is an offset with the solar farm with whom they have a contract. So I bought some renewable energy. I use it to offset here in where I am in the city of Chennai. So while I've taken those renewable energy... That company that's selling the renewable energy, they cannot sell that portion that has already been sold to this company. Otherwise, it is fraud, right? Because this company has claimed to have used this solar energy. And if this part is being resold multiple times by this company that is doing the solar farm business, it's fraud. It's cheating, so, and it's uh, double counting many times, right? So in the world, we need to have a way to ensure there's corresponding adjustments. So if we have this with another country, just imagine that the solar farm now is several thousand kilometers away in another country. If Singapore is to count that I have imported this renewable energy and therefore reduce my my carbon footprint, that company got to increase it by the same amount. You cannot count that renewable energy in its own country account. So that's what we mean by correspondent adjustments. The reason why it's complicated is because there are many layers of rules for some countries. It has a local rules, it has provincial rules. Uh, sometimes it's resting with different agencies. Also, we have all carbon credits out there that actually existed before Article 6 rules came about. So how do we transit all carbon credits or some of these ETF type of mechanism into this new framework? That's adding to the complication. But I think we can go through that, we can resolve the problem, we can negotiate a way through. Because all of us, I think the parties to COP, the parties to UNFCCC, see that the potential of carbon credit as an additional source of capital to catalyze and to really allow countries to develop the economy with greener energy, with new way of reforesting so that they can monetize their nature assets, for example, is vast. So rather than waiting for government grants or donations, carbon credit can be really an additional source of finance. Now, what comes next? For example, I understand the government will be publishing a list of eligible carbon credit programs, methodologies and host countries later this year, for, for example. So we have the criteria and the project owners will obviously want their carbon credit projects to be eligible because that means that there will be additional market for them. 
And with more money flowing into this product, we are hoping that more countries, more companies, more project owners would also want their projects to be endorsed and to be included. So we set up the rules. We will go through the existing projects and list down which are the ones that are eligible so that the large emitters that are interested to offset can look through them and look for one that suits their needs and suits their pricing consideration, for example. They would buy off this project and then they will submit to the government to offset against their liability. And on an ongoing basis, we're hoping that more project developer, more project owner will also put up their project, first according to the criteria, and then to submit for our acceptance and consideration. So that this, this is how we will grow the supply of carbon credits. And at the same time, with our carbon tax increasing from 5 to 25 to 45, we are hoping to develop the demand as well, that more large emitters will start looking at this as a real alternative to paying taxes to the government. Yes, yeah, so I was going to ask you about the rising value of the carbon tax, because that will prove to be an incentive you know, from $45 and possibly as, as you know, 50 to even 80 That's quite a considerable amount, and that could be quite a good source of revenue for project developers. So that leads me sort of to my last question, which is, do you foresee the percentage of carbon tax liabilities, which is currently 5%, that can be met by carbon offsets? Do you see that sort of rising then? Because that would then also kind of stimulate that demand, particularly as the carbon tax price rises. Going back to the, the sort of purpose of carbon tax, it's really to cause the large emitters to reduce the emission. So the best way to do that is actually onshore, to really look at you know how you can tinkle with your processes, put in scrubbles to reduce, so for example, like gas escapes that escapes from the processes, to really improve their processes so that they can reduce the carbon emission from their projects. Our carbon tax is really a kind of carrot extinct. In other words, we tax 25, 45, whatever level, but we are actually giving it back through incentives. If you are in applying for grants to implement energy-efficient projects or you're trying to put in some equipment, some automation mechanization to reduce emission, you come to the government, the government will consider co-funding with you. So carbon tax is really to cost the way that we run our businesses, run our economy so that we can reduce the carbon emission in Singapore. That's really the first step that we should be considering. But when we can't do that anymore, when the marginal cost is too high for us, given the existing technology that's available to us, then the carbon tax, the carbon credit part of it could really be an alternative. It's the same philosophy for the government as well. We will do our utmost to reduce the emission right now. We are going to electrify our vehicle fleet, for example. We are going to improve the energy efficiency of our buildings. We're going to raise the accreditation standards for green buildings. We're going to look at how we can you know, reduce the energy that's used in our water and waste treatment plants. Really looking at a way to reduce our energy requirement and therefore our carbon footprint. Whatever that's not reduced, the remaining balanced amount, when we don't have the technology right now to do so, we will then consider offsetting with carbon credits. Because... We, we need to clean up our backyard as much as possible first before we look at making changes 
cross-border, in a cross-border way. So we want companies to do that. First, look internally, look at your processes, how you can you know, reduce your carbon footprint, failing which you can't find really good alternative at the moment, then you can consider carbon credit. So 5%, I think right now, is an appropriate level. We don't want to have too much proportion. If it's too much, and if our carbon tax is not high enough, it becomes quite an easy way to, you know, transfer. So we are finding a sweet spot, so to speak, to elicit the right behavior from the corporate point of view. At the same time, quite realistic about what's available for us at the moment, given the current technology in terms of abatement, and then finding the right spot as we go along. In the future, who knows, depending on how carbon credit markets develop, depending on technology, on mitigation, that's available, we may then make the adjustments as we go along. But Singapore is trying to, to significantly grow its carbon market, right? carbon financing, project origination. Obviously, it also wants some domestic demand from the, the carbon tax as well. So wouldn't it make sense to try to stimulate that domestic demand as well within, as you say, those parameters of companies making those initial efforts first internally and using offsets as kind of like the last resort? Yeah, so so five percent is is a start. Really, the larger market is actually outside Singapore. So as you know, we are not sizable domestic market that can create a new type of product globally. But we think we can be the impetus, we can be a catalyst. So that's what we intend to do. Let's look at how things go, how we are progressing, and then we can review the percentage at a later time. Uh, but more importantly, is that when we talked about carbon services and finance, green finance, it's it's much bigger than carbon credits. Carbon credit is only one of the instruments that we are keen to develop. That's green bonds, that's green loans. And also just to package the program, for example, there are many, many services as needed. You need people with expertise. You need people that can measure, for example, forest cover. You need someone that will have the science to tell you what species of trees will sink, you know, what amount of carbon on an annual basis, do the, the math and the science behind carbon credit uh, projects. And you need people that will have the ability to do inspection, to do auditing, for example, the legal instruments as needed. So it's a full range of complementary services that's really there to support carbon credits uh, and, and also many other real decarbonisation, mitigation and adaptation projects around the world. So it sounds like it is quite an exciting space. Yes, climate change is, is a hard thing to, to tackle, but there's lots and lots of things that can be done, and obviously carbon offsetting is just one of those. So thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.